morning. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, with your friends or families. It's good to see you all this morning as we conclude our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. If you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we'll be looking at the final passage there beginning in verse 24. Now when we were talking a year ago about the uh, sermon preaching calendar of 2018, we, we wanted to do something practical, something that uh, addressed the struggles and the needs that we have in everyday life, and it ended up being the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know about you, but I've been challenged a lot this past uh, three months. I've grown a lot. I've learned a lot. Even some doors opening where I, I realize how much more I have to learn, how much more I have to grow as a Christ follower. And so by way of review, you see, I grew up the youngest of six boys. How many, any youngest siblings in here? All right, man, you guys know what's up. I'm the youngest of six boys, and one of the benefits of being the youngest is you get to learn from all the stupid mistakes of your older siblings. Not that I learned all the the lessons, but I did learn a lot. And and so for us today, let's go back through, by way of review, the encyclopedic content of the Sermon on the Mount, all these topics that we hit the past few months. You'll see a slide up on the screen, and on the left, you'll see the behavior. That was what we addressed uh, in order through chapters 5, 6, and even chapter 7. And then you'll see a biblical example of the fool in that behavior area as well as the wise person. And, and this is how I learn. I love to go through the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, and compare and contrast different individuals and in how they either followed the Lord and were faithful or were not. And this is how I grow. So I thought I would share this with you, and this would be a great way for us to review what we've covered the past few weeks. So you see there with anger, where we, we started the first topic, uh, the King Saul is a great example of the fool in that regard. If you look at 1 Samuel, especially chapters 18, 19, he's trying to kill David, and just that anger and that rage. And then by, by way of contrast, Joseph, the, uh, the 11th son of Jacob in Genesis 45, it was within his powers to pay back his 10 older brothers who sold him, left him for dead, and yet he forgave them because he saw the whole picture that it was God's sovereign plan. With sexual sin, this is one that's benefited me greatly, just comparing and contrasting King David, again, with Joseph, the same Joseph, and how King David uh, sinned with Bathsheba. He was in the wrong place where he shouldn't have been, where he knew he was gonna see something and he saw it, but then you see Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife grabbed him in Genesis 39, he had already prepared in his heart what he would do when he was tempted, and he ran, and he ran. So great example. And and here's some other ones. In terms of words and retaliation, a little-known chapter, Numbers 12, is a great chapter to study when Miriam is uh, is kind of uh, throwing Moses under the bus and saying some things about him. And he responded by turning the other cheek. And and you see God show up and mediate in there. Uh, Worship and sacrifice, a great parable. Luke 18, that's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where we get to see really what Jesus taught there in Matthew 6 come to life uh, in that parable. So look at that in Luke 18 sometime. Then there's the heart treasure. And I mentioned this when I preached that sermon you know, where your, your heart is, that's where your treasure uh, will be. Or where your treasure is, that's your, where your heart is. And if you compare and contrast Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister, with Judas Iscariot in John 12, over the same instance, which was her breaking that alabaster flask with the precious ointment and anointing Jesus' feet, and see their attitudes in those moments, a, a great way to apply that passage. Of course, anxiety, I mentioned that too. At the end of Luke 10, you'll find 
Again, Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus, and, and how they're both uh, in, in that moment experiencing Christ differently. One is very anxious, the other is not. Uh, then judgment, look through all the Gospels at the, the illegal trials of Jesus by the high priest Caiaphas, and even in John, his, uh, his father-in-law Annas, you'll see the, the comparison there. And then even looking at uh, Robert's passage last week, which was the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount's conclusion, uh, and looking at the two paths, looking at the, the false and true teacher, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 28, it's an incredible passage where you see the false prophet, Hananiah, compared with Jeremiah, and just a beautiful way, again, to apply those truths that we learned last week and throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So I would encourage you, spend some time in these passages and really look, looking at the visual learning lessons of these individuals to better apply all the stops we've made in this great sermon. Uh, and, and again, reinforcing the, the fact that we've been looking at all along, that God knows how life works best. I haven't said that in a couple of weeks. I know you guys probably forgot, but that was really the, the overarching application, that God knows how life works best. And we can take him at his word which is what Jesus is giving us in this great sermon. So you'll see the title slide for this final stop in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I focused on the storm here more so than the foundations. Again, we'll go through, we'll make a few observations about this passage in a moment. But where I wanted us to, uh, to really land the plane, so to speak, is just this reminder, a storm is coming. A storm that will affect all of us. Will you stand or fall? And I was reminded about a storm early in my life. In fact, it was one of my very first memories as a human being. I was about five going on six. It was the summer of 1979, and I can still see my house in that moment because a hurricane was coming, and it was supposed to hit Fort Lauderdale, Florida dead on. Hurricane David. We got a lot of Davids in here. Hurricane David. And I still remember my brothers uh, helping my mom put shutters up on all the windows. And I have this visual in my mind of this darkened house. Even though it was daytime, it was dark. And we had candlelight. And I was so afraid because I didn't understand all that was going on. And by God's grace, David missed us. We didn't get a direct hit. But I still remember that fear. And it was a good fear because it made us ready for the storm. And that's where we have to end today. The question is, are you ready for the storm that is coming? And I'll explain what that storm is here in a few moments. Now, a hurricane or the tragic fires that we've seen out in California the past few weeks, those are isolated events. And as horrible as they are, and as much destruction as they do, they're still very isolated. They're in a one region, one little part of the country or the world. But the storm I speak of is a global storm. A global storm when God's kingdom comes crashing in and time as we know it ends. And Paul refers to and, and describes this storm in 2 Thessalonians. We'll see it up on the screen here. He writes, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so as we jump into this passage, let's look now at the big idea, kind of the sermon in a sentence that guides us today. And you'll see it on the screen. Today, Jesus draws his sermon to an end by illustrating the eternal fates 
of the truly and falsely righteous, giving his listeners a visual parable to remember and apply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, this, this entire sermon series has been great. Thank you that you have taught me so much and humbled me and, and just really getting a grasp for what Jesus intended to teach that day. Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you would help us to pursue that greater righteousness every day. That we would not fall into the traps of man-centered Christianity, of legalism and, and putting on masks and fronts that are not real. But let us, Lord, begin at the heart level of what you've done in making us righteous and then bear fruit from that outward into the world for your glory that you would use us as individuals, as families, and as a church to expand your kingdom and to be the salt and the light that you have designed us to be, again, for your glory. And for anyone in here who doesn't know you, Lord, who's not ready for the storm, oh, Father, bring them to faith in Christ. Open their eyes. Change their heart like you did mine. And let them repent and believe this glorious rescue mission of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I've entitled this final parable, Foundations Matter. Foundations really matter. Read with me verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, as Matthew writes for us, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Ask any builder, and I know we have a couple in this room, ask any builder who's built a house how important the foundation is. If you get the foundation wrong, then the house goes wrong. Every case. And I learned this in one of the most hostile work environments I've ever been in in my life. The toddler room of a church nursery. See, at my last church, I was the children's director, among other things. So I was in the nursery a lot because I had to fill in for people who called in and whatever else. And I would work in the toddler room often. And in the toddler room, we had a gigantic box of cardboard bricks. And I tried my hardest to teach those toddlers, don't just start stacking them up interlock them, put two this way and then two this way and two this way, and you can go all the way to the roof. I don't think they got it, but they love tackling whatever I built. It was incredible. But it's true. I'm joking here, but it's true. Foundations matter. And that's really the point Jesus is making. Um, what is your house built on or what are you building on? So let's look at the passage and make a few observations. Now, I must mention the context of this is the same as it's been through the entire sermon. And it's actually perfect for our context here in the, the southern south with this Christian, the southern south, yeah, that makes sense. The, the, the Christian south of this, this Christian culture that we, we live in, it's very similar to what's happening there. Because throughout this, Jesus has been comparing and contrasting the false righteousness of the Pharisees, the skin-deep, hypocritical, uh, outward religion that, that was never, never began in the heart with the greater righteousness that began in the heart, the righteousness that he did in making us righteous. And the same is true here. 
We have to understand this. So what you have is you have these two men building a house. And if we were to stand and look at these two houses that these two men were building, we would think both look wonderful. But what we don't see is the foundation because the foundations then were unseen and the foundation is the heart. And that's what really matters. And so essentially the storm comes and tells the true tale of what is in that individual's house, heart. It doesn't matter how wonderful the house was. The storm brings out the truth. And, and so that's what we see here. So look with me at the passage. Look with me at the very words, and, and we'll make a few observations. Again, you have the two men. Uh, they're both building, uh, and they're both building on a foundation. And, and we're, what Jesus is, is uh, using this parable for is to illustrate simply what someone does with his words. And so we should think of his words as the entire Sermon on the Mount, everything that he has taught to this point. Of course, we could apply even the entire gospel to this. But for these original listeners, it was everything that he taught. And there's only two options. Everybody's hearing the words. The question is, when you leave here, when, when the sermon ends and he comes down from the mount, what you do with the words tells the true tale of where you are with Christ, whether you have that righteousness, his righteousness, or not. Very simple. And so the one who heard and then did, Jesus calls a wise man. And the Greek word there for wise man appears 14 times in the New Testament, seven of them, half of them in Matthew. So this is a very important concept for Matthew. And in the, the uh, outside Greek culture, this very word was the word the Greek philosophers used to describe the model virtuous individual. The, the, the person, the type of person they should all be chasing after. Even Greek philosophy saw that with, with great virtue. So this wise man chose carefully where he would build and built upon the rock, built upon the rock. And then we see this other individual who Jesus calls a foolish man. It's funny, I, I find this uh, humorous, but the, the Greek word there for foolish, it's the word we get moron from. So that, that brings it out for me a little more than just simply the foolish man, the moron. The moron is the one who would do all this work, all this hard work. And by the way, for, I'm not a builder type, so when I think of, of building a house, and I've talked to Joe before, Joe's like, yeah, building a house is easy. And for me, it's like, what? Oh my goodness. It's like impossible. So it's huge for me, this idea of all the work that has to go into building a house in order, getting everything right. Can you imagine at the end of the day if it was a total waste, that when the storm comes, whew, gone. And so that person, according to Jesus, is a moron. One who would spend the time listening and hearing everything. And then it would all, all be a waste. And again, what Jesus, who Jesus is illustrating there is the Pharisee, right? Or the person who would live the Christian life outwardly, doing all this stuff all their life, getting up, doing all the religion, and then finding out at the end, like what Robert taught us last week, Jesus says those words, depart from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. You thought you could get in on your own righteousness. That's not good enough because you're a sinner. You're evil. You need my righteousness, the greater righteousness. If you look at the passage up on the screen, this comes from James. And it helps us, again, he uses a different illustration here to help us understand what this looks like. James says there, be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourself. And that's one of the biggest problems. The one who builds his house on the sand doesn't realize it's a sandy foundation. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It's hard to imagine that, but that's the fool. That's the fool that uh, he's talking about. So again, coming back to this passage, the question that is before us, what are you building on? See, again, both were building, and that building had to do with righteousness, all about righteousness. Is it, is it a building that is dependent upon the work of Christ to change my heart, where he's done the work, he's given me his righteousness, now my, my job is to be fruitful and to be a surrendered kingdom servant, being used by him, or am I trying by my good, good works, hopeful that the good will outweigh the bad when I get to the end? That is the foolish path, no doubt. James gives us another passage, and by the way, you see there's a connection between the Sermon on the Mount and James. And this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament because people wrongly think that James is teaching a works-based salvation, and he's not. He's saying the same thing Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount in a different way. But it helps us to understand. Both passages help us to understand the other. And James says here, What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. He's not a doer of the word. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, James is saying a very similar thing uh, to what he's talking about. Now, before we end this section, let's talk about the storm. Because this was a learning lesson for me this week. As I have read this passage, taught it, uh, when it comes to application, it's always about the storms of life, right? Raise your hand if you're in one or recently have come through a storm of life, right? We, we all have storms of life. Some of you are in them. We have a beloved family in this church right now that's down in Charleston with their beautiful baby Harmony, kind of going, definitely going through a storm of life. And I do believe still that this passage uh, lets us do that. We can apply that because the storms, the, the struggles we go through as Christians really bring out who we really are, or better, who we're really trusting in those moments. But according to Jonathan Pennington and, and even some other scholars I read, this storm that he's talking about primarily, the primary application is not the storms of life, but the storm that comes upon all mankind at the end of time what we call the consummation or the second coming of Christ or the judgment, all the different names that we have. And so this then is a prophecy and parable of the coming storm that will hit every one of us. And so I bring back in the title of the passage. There's a storm coming. Are you ready for the storm? Now, quickly, uh, Coming in when Christ saved me and I got into the Baptist church, kind of the default teaching was what we call dispensationalism, right? I'm not going to go into all of what dispensationalism is, but one of the teachings connected with that is the idea that Jesus is going to rapture up the church before the seven-year tribulation at the end, before it gets really bad, right? And I believed that for a while. I don't believe that anymore. And I'll tell you why, because I haven't seen anything in the scripture that explicitly teaches that. What I do see are passages that seem to indicate the church will go through that time. And again, this is a secondary matter. You don't have to believe as I do. You can still believe that. 
I know many of us have read the Left Behind books that represents the, the rapture. And, and let me tell you, I hope that's true. I hope I'm wrong. I hope as, as maybe one day we're going up in the air to Jesus and you say, aha, you're wrong, Ted. I'll be like, you're right. Praise God. Because we're getting out of here before it gets bad, right? But the way I live life is I'd rather be surprised than caught off guard. And because I love you all, I just want to encourage you, study the scriptures. Don't depend upon a, a fiction novel or just the default that maybe you were taught, like I was coming in. And here's an example of what I'm talking about. Look at this passage from Matthew 24. This is Jesus at near the end of this very gospel talking about the end times. He's answering two different questions that the apostles ask him. And so here he's referring to the end. And he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And these, this is one of those passages that I read, and I see the church being called up and raptured after the bad stuff. So I just want to encourage you, study the scriptures, be ready, be prepared. The storm is coming, especially those of you in this room who do not know the Lord, who aren't sure where you stand with him. Search the scriptures, talk to one of us, ask questions, especially those of you who are young. This is a very important matter because a storm is coming. Now, a few application points before we conclude this sermon today. First and foremost, as I mentioned, this passage applies very well to our context because of the fact that legalism and skin-deep Christianity has been taught so long in this area. This is a great passage. And I guarantee you, most of you know people who have been damaged by that version of Christianity, by the hypocritical, outward-focused Christianity. Take them through the sermon. Teach them what you've learned. Buy Jonathan Pennington's commentary like Robert and I did and, and read it and learn and take them through it and show them what it means to be a follower of Christ. That it begins in the heart. It's all about his righteousness, the gift that comes. That salvation is by grace, not by works. And more importantly, sanctification is also by grace, not by works. Share what you've learned with others. And then secondly, I still believe this is a great passage for us to apply with the storms of life, with the challenges, the brokenness that comes to all of us. That's one of the biggest lessons to take away from this. The storm equally comes upon the saved and the unsaved alike. Let us be ready that we're not caught off guard and understand that when those storms come, God is disciplining us. He's allowing the storms to teach us to trust him to understand what it means for him to be our father, who we go to and trust. You could think of it as a foundation stress test, a foundation stress test. Look what John Stott says up here on the screen. Only a storm will reveal the truth. Sometimes a storm of crisis or calamity betrays what manner of person we are, for true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit till it comes to the trial. Oh, how true those words are. So we've seen here in this great parable that foundations matter. And secondly, we're going to look here at the last few words of the sermon, which I've uh, 
kind of uh, put here, so says the master builder. So you need to put those two things together. Foundations matter, so says the master builder. And I say that because we end this sermon with a declaration from the narrator of the authority of Jesus Christ and the profound effect his teaching had on these listeners, unlike anything they had ever heard before. Look what he says here in uh, verses 28 and 29 as we return to the text. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now I remember back in not, when 9-11 happened soon after, of course, you know, for like six months, the news was all about 9-11. And in one of those early stories that came out as a result, some of the original architect team that still were alive were interviewed and questioned, saying, hey, why didn't you do a better job of preparing the Twin Towers for a potential airplane strike? And they said, we did, we did. But back then, a 727 was the biggest plane there was. And that's all we had to go on. And we prepared the Twin Towers. We built them to sustain Impact from a 727, but they were hit by 747s, which were like twice the size in that day. And so it, it, what, the reason that all happened was because people wanted to go to the authority. They wanted to go to those who actually built the Twin Towers to find out. And I say that because Jesus Christ, unlike any other teacher, is, is the architect of the Word of God. He's the author of the Word of God. Another way to look at it is this. For those of you who grew up reading the Harry Potter books, what would it have been like if J.K. Rowling came into your school and read some of the first book to you? It would have been amazing. She's the author. It's not like anyone else who could give commentary on it. And that's, that's what's happening here. All the rabbis just taught what other people wrote. And most of that wasn't even biblical. It was the, the rabbi, the, the old famous rabbis, like the Talmud and what they had taught. But Jesus is the author, not just of the word of God, but all things. So he teaches as one who has authority. Now quickly, verse 28, one of the things that happens here that you should take note of is the narrator's voice returns. This is the first time we've heard his voice since back in verse two. So that signals to us the sermon is over. But what I wanna focus on is really just two words here. And and we already read them. Look at verse 28. The crowds were astonished, astonished. There's not a good English word to capture the power of the Greek word there. There just isn't. Um, Again, just think amazement. The the way I translate it in the TED version is blown away. They were absolutely blown away. I'll try to illustrate this in a couple different ways. Growing up in the uh, you know, 80s, uh, well, it really didn't matter when, but me, I was a sports fan of every sport there was. I followed every professional sport. And I, uh, you know, I love football probably the most, or baseball, but I also love professional basketball. And it was a great time to be a basketball fan because you, you got to see the prime career of Larry Bird, of Magic Johnson, of Isaiah Thomas. But someone else came into the league in the late 80s that was unlike all of them. And his name was Michael Jordan. And I was never a Bulls fan, but oh my goodness. He was unlike anybody. You were just amazed at watching him play. Another way I could illustrate this more biblically, think of David and Goliath. Think about how blown away and amazed both the Jews and the Philistines were that day where a youth comes with a slingshot and a rock and takes out like an eight or nine foot 
warrior champion. Just like that. Of course, we know it was the power of God. Blown away. Hopefully that helps you understand the crowd's astonishment in this moment. Sitting there. With the sermon. Maybe you think of the Emmaus Road disciples where they were hanging out with Jesus the day he rose from the grave and didn't know it was Jesus. And then when he vanished and they realized who it was, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us when he spoke, when he taught? They were astonished. And uh, William Hendrickson helps us out with this. He says that the, the teaching of these scribes who normally taught them, where Jesus spoke truth, they were corrupt and, and very evasive. Where Jesus talked about things that were significant to our life, they were trivial. Where Jesus gave this systematic teaching that built and flowed and made sense logically, they would often ramble on and talk about nonsense. Where Jesus would use these brilliant illustrations that we've seen now for several weeks. They, their sermons, their teaching was often dry and boring. And where Jesus obviously was a lover of men, the scribes and Pharisees almost seemed to have disdain for people and couldn't stand them. Jesus was incredible. Look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 3. Helps us, uh, again, get a glimpse of what's happening here. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than even Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. They just sat through a sermon from God himself in the flesh. Many would leave that day never the same. Others would leave and go right back to their life as it was. And the question is for us, is how will we leave here today? Not amazed at Ted's sermon, no, no, not at all, but at what God has given us in his word. The love that, that comes from God is seen so much so that he even wanted to communicate with us. He wanted to write his word and give us the treasure of his truth to take from here. And what's, what's amazing here, you see, they didn't have a copy of the Bible. They didn't have a copy or several copies that sitting at home. There was no handout that Jesus handed. In case you're forgetting everything, here's, here's a handout of everything I talked about. They would have loved all of that, but they didn't have that. In fact, many of them probably couldn't even read. And so as a master teacher, which Jesus was, he leaves them with this one visual to take with them, something they could remember and apply everything that he's taught them to. Foundations. Foundations matter. What an incredible God we have. And, and as I end this time and in this sermon, in this incredible passage, I just want to come back to one thing, and I talk about this a lot, but it's so important. For those of you who are believers, who are Christians, what is your attitude to the Word of God each day? Being in the Word of God every day is not about, again, legalism. We don't like legalism around here. It's not about checkbox, right? You can consider it, really, daily foundation reinforcement. Our foundations need to be reinforced daily, and that's what God's Word is about. Do you take God's word for granted? Because I promise you, all of these people who followed Jesus off the mount would not take for granted what we have. They would have loved to have had the resources and the accessibility we have to the truth of God's word. Are you taking that for granted daily? And if you are, stop. 
Take advantage of this treasure God has given you. Be strengthened by his truth daily and see truly how life works best when we're being shaped and grown and sanctified by his glorious truth, by this glorious gospel. Because we can't even begin to be a doer of the word if we're not hearing it, if we're not hearing it. So take the time to hear so that together we can live it out. Second thing I want to mention before we wrap up is this. Good theology is important. Again, we, we love theology, and we want to have biblical theology here. And it would be my hope and prayer that every one of you surpasses me, in my, which I don't think would be that hard to do, but surpasses me in my knowledge of the Word of God. I would want that. I would want every one of you to be greater teachers than I am. That would be awesome. Essentially, Robert and I, we need to work ourselves out of a job. That's our goal, that you guys would grow beyond us. But all the good theology in the world is worthless if it's not a theology that works. If it's not a theology that grows legs and arms and goes out the door to be light and to be salt in the world for the glory of God. And to do these things, not to build our own righteousness, not to try to get into heaven. That's done if you're a Christian. But to be used by God for his glory. So let us have a theology that works. He saved us by grace, but he saved us to work and be his hands and feet for his glory. God does not need us to save anyone. He can does, he does do it all himself. I mean, he's really the one that's fulfilling the Great Commission, but he's always inviting his church to come in and to join him, and, and we want to be obedient here at the Church of Blue Ridge in that regard. So my friends, the Sermon on the Mount, may you flourish, may we all flourish, and have that whole person righteousness and, and I, my prayer, and, and Robert's prayer I know, is just that he would use his word, use this sermon to grow us as we continue to follow him. Now, before I finally wrap things up, just want to give a, 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 clear, a quick preview of where we're going next week and the next several weeks. Uh, we are entering into next week, one, an Advent series, which will last four weeks, but more importantly, a year-long study in the Gospel of John. And you'll see the slide up here that that Robert created for us. And we're simply naming this entire sermon series, I Am. I Am. And you might know that's what Yahweh would mean if you translate it into English, and that is the covenant name of God. Because you see in the Gospel of John, John does something different than the other three writers. He is asking a question and really supplying the answer over and over and over of who the historical Jesus is. And that's what we're going to be learning. So listen, if you have your missional community groups or you as an individual have some lost people that you're, that you're connecting with, that you're sharing the gospel with, that you're praying with, that who live locally, who don't have a church home, this would be a great time to invite them in because we're going to be getting the gospel heavy every week. When I say heavy, I don't mean complicated, very simple, but, but it's going to be all the time. We're going to be learning so much of the gospel and who Jesus is. And in in terms of application, something you're gonna see that I'm really excited to to point to is that Jesus was the original missional community champion because he demonstrates all the aspects of our missional community model in this gospel account. So it's gonna be a great year uh, in this passage. Now next week, we're we're entering into the four-week Advent series, so we're gonna use the prologue of John, the first 18 verses over four weeks, and you'll see the title of this Advent series, The Word Became Flesh. Uh, That slide was actually created by Trevor Hoffman, the pastor at Greer Station, because we're doing a joint sermon series through Advent with the church at Greer Station. It's gonna be a lot of fun, and we're really excited about that. 
So uh, I want us to circle back to the real ending of the Sermon on the Mount real quick, and then we will be finished. But look with me at the first verse of chapter 8. This is actually where the sermon ends. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. By his grace, many would follow him on this day because of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the invitation is simple. For those of us who are believers, there's the invitation to greater righteousness, to follow him and to flourish. For those of you who aren't sure where you're at or you're lost, just like the folks here, there's that invitation. Will you follow? A storm is coming. And on either of those fronts, if we can help you, that's what we're here to do. Please come and talk to us today. Email us this week. Call us this week. We'll go have lunch. We'll go have coffee, whatever it might be. We want to be available to you, uh, whether, you're, again, you're a believer struggling or someone who doesn't know if they're ready for that storm that is coming. Now, we have a treat today. We get to experience the Lord's Supper. We've talked about the gospel. We've learned from the Lord. And now, as a, as a family of believers, we're going to take his supper and experience the gospel. Robert's going to come up here in a moment and lead us in that time. So let us pray as we transition from the sermon and continue to worship. Father, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for what you've taught us throughout this time. And really, just as, as Micah shared earlier, we take for granted sometimes, I think, because we get so used to the same songs, the same passages. But Father, let us never see your gospel as common or redundant. Let us pay attention to every word we sing, every word we read, and help us as a church, as a family of believers, to flourish according to the vision you lay out in the Sermon on the Mount. Let us accept this invitation to human flourishing, both those of us who are saved, who find ourselves struggling in the storms of life, but also those in this room who aren't saved. Lead them to your truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time we've had together today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.